I'm back. I'd like to talk to you about the Word of God. How does that sound? Can I, um, can I encourage you? It'd be great to have that passage open. So Luke chapter 5, that'll be really helpful. Um, I particularly want to let you know at the start that we're going to have Q&A at the end, and I'm looking at this part of the church here and say, guys, I'm, I welcome your questions. Is that okay? So concentrate. Uh, over here, welcome your questions as well. Here, welcome your questions. Hello, guys, welcome your questions. Questions are really good, and often if you're thinking to yourself, hey, I'm not sure I really want to ask something, do you know what? Oh, you, you as well, guys. Uh, that um, Actually, they are really helpful, and they help clarify stuff that other people are thinking about. So that's my encouragement to you as we, um, as we begin. Now, I was looking uh, for images for my message uh, this week, and I found this one, and I really liked it. I liked it because it's a question of the heart. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Now, uh, hypothetically, some of you have never asked that question because you know you're good enough. Is that right? (laughs) No. Many of us ask this question in a whole variety of different contexts. Am I a good enough mum? Am I a good enough student? Do I do my responsibilities at work well enough? Am I a good enough brother or sister? We ask constantly, am I good enough? And if we take the question and ask the ultimate, am I good enough, we think about God, don't we? How about God and you? Will I be good enough for God? And it sparks a bunch of other questions. What will it it be like? What will a holy God do with me if he really knows me? What will a holy God do with me? How will God treat my uncleanness, assuming that he knows it, which he does? Can God help me with my unsolvable issues? And fourthly, would God want me? Would God want me? These are questions of our heart and of our worth, and I want to pray that God would help us to see the answers tonight from this text as we meet with Jesus on the shore of the lake. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you might help those of us for whom this and these are real questions to bring them to you tonight and to meet you in your word. Father, thanks that this word is living and active. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit you're present. And we pray, Father, that we might meet your Son and that we might hear his words tonight. Amen. Okay, so uh, have a look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, One day Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And your first thought might be, the lake of Gennesaret, where on earth is that? Because it's not a name that turns up very often in the Bible. We're actually in the north of Israel, right up the top here in this area called Galilee. And if there was a lake in Galilee, what might you call it? Yeah, Lake of Galilee, Lake Galilee, you might. Or you could call it the Sea of Galilee if you had an overactive imagination and you called it a sea instead of a lake, right? But where is Lake Gennesaret? Because that doesn't appear on map. Where is that? And so if we come in a little bit closer, you'll see that there's actually a place called Gennesaret and some people called it Lake Gennesaret. So the place that you know as the Sea of Galilee, Lake Galilee, is also uh, the Lake of Gennesaret, uh, which is where Jesus was in the north of Israel. And as he gathers, we see that a crowd is building. Have a look at the next couple of verses. Verse 2, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen 
who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, I don't know when the last time that you're in a big crowd was. Can you think of the last time when you're in a big crowd? Uh, I went to go and see the thunder, humbled by the sixes, a little while ago. And, uh, and we were standing outside as everyone was pushing for their allocated seat that no one else could take. Just one of those bizarre things, isn't it, right? Everyone needs to crowd. There's all, their seats are there. You've already paid for them. It has a number. You've got, anyway, big crowd. They're one of those crowds where you want to hold the hand of your little people because it's, you know, it might get a little bit crazy here. That's the kind of crowd that is around Jesus. It's a chaotic crowd because he's been healing people. So what do people want to do? Let me get at him. Let me get close to Jesus. And so Jesus borrowed a boat. He borrowed a boat. And it wasn't just anybody's boat. Uh, Have a look. You can see here it's the boat belonging to Simon. And we met Simon the other week because Simon's mother-in-law was healed. If you have a look at verses 38 and 39 of the previous chapter, chapter 4, you see that Jesus has healed Simon's mother-in-law. So he doesn't just go up to anybody and commandeer their boat. He says to Simon, Simon, can I grab your boat? No problems. It happens that it's very useful to hop on a boat. Has anyone been fishing on a boat? Great. If you've done that, you'll know that on the water, you can hear remarkably well over water. There's an incredible acoustic advantage uh, from, from speaking over water. And so Jesus hops into the boat, and it gives him some safe distance, but it also helps his sound go out to the crowd that is gathered around. I also wanted to observe, this is actually field preaching. And what I mean by that is, it's not a Sabbath day. How do I know that it's not a Sabbath day that Jesus is doing the teaching? Because they're fishing, that's exactly right. And they're cleaning their nets and all of that would have been considered work and the Jews don't work on the Sabbath. So here's Jesus and he's teaching. It's outdoors, it's not in a synagogue and it's not on a Sabbath and here's this massive crowd gathered around him. It's field preaching, which is pretty cool. And then we have this incredible scene unfold. Have a look with me from verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come along and help them. And they came and filled their boats, both boats, so full that they began to sink. This is a pretty incredible scene. Now, I want you to know, Simon is quite comfortable with having Jesus use his boat as a pulpit. Right? When it's a pulpit, no problems, Jesus, you can have the boat. But then Jesus says, okay, Simon, I want you to push out and go to the deep water and put your nets over. And then it stops being a pulpit and starts to become the place where Peter does his work. And when that happens, Peter goes, hey, dusty carpenter boy from the hill country, okay, I want to tell you that on this boat, I'm the boss. And I'm pretty 
comfortable that we don't catch fish in the middle of the day. And my boys and I have just unpicked all the stuff out of our nets. They're all good for tomorrow. And we fished this very water yesterday. And there's a crowd of people here and they know I'm a professional fisherman. And if I push out and come up with empty nets, I'm going to look. And yet, what does he say? Because you say so, I will. I'll face all of that potential humiliation. I'll go against what I know and I'm going to do it. And here's the question I guess I'd say to you guys. Are we happy for Jesus to be on the pulpit on a Sunday night? Does he ever come with you into your place of business outside of this day? If Jesus tells you to do something here on Sunday, will it translate to Monday? Will it make it to Tuesday? Does Jesus have a place in your business, school, home, family? Does he have a place in your life beyond Sunday? Great answer, and I'm pleased to hear it. I want you to see that what happens when the nets go over the side. Remember last week, Luke spoke to us, and he spoke to us that miracles are an interruption in business as usual in the universe. This is not business as usual. Something extraordinary is happening, and the significance is sinking in. This is a little pun, which I'm very happy with, okay? The boat is overwhelmed with fish. It's overwhelmed with fish. Now, when we say they caught a lot and the nets were starting to break, I want you to think about a normal boat. It's, it's got some freeboard, Doug? Is that, yeah, pretty good. It's got some freeboard, which basically means the top of the boat and the water have quite a degree of separation to them. You can put a whole bunch of guys in it and it might sink down in the water a little bit. But if you've got so many fish in that the side of the boat is starting to let water in, you have got something truly extraordinary happening. Are you with me? Something staggering. In fact, it's so unexpected, it's the wrong time of the day, it's so massive that Peter is left in awe and he actually starts to realise that Jesus is dangerous to him. Jesus is dangerous to him. And so his response is, Simon says, go away from me, Lord. Have a look with uh, me there at verse 8. Go away from me, Lord. Now, Jesus' teaching has taught him that Jesus is a significant figure with authority. The miracles have made clear to him that Jesus has supernatural authority. But now, standing on the side of the the, the lake with this abundant catch, he realizes something brand new. He's convicted about his sin. The one who he's close to is actually divine. He says, Get away from me, God, for I'm a sinful man. Did you see this? And so it actually says that he falls on his knees in front of Jesus. He can't be near the sinful, the sinful man can't be near the holiness of God. And he's, he's in awe. I said this morning when I was on my knees, I said, we used to take communion on our knees. Does anyone remember this? Right? And you'd come up the front. We, we could do it tonight. Do you want to give do it tonight. Do you want to have a go? It's really, we'll give it a go. We'll give it a go. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's what you'll discover. You can't be proud on your knees. You can't be. You can't be proud on your knees. And so here's Simon, and he's afraid of the holiness of God. He's become, Jesus has become dangerous to him. And I want you to see what Jesus says in response. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
God is rightly an object of fear for the sinful man and woman. But Jesus says here, don't be afraid. And then he says, from now on you will fish for people. From now on you will fish for people. And I want to suggest to you that these two responses to Jesus's, uh, to, to a, uh, Simon's fear actually give us two verses that we really love. John 3.16 and Matthew 28. Have a look. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Don't be afraid. You and I, unclean, sinful, can come before God because of his great love. And then once we're saved, he has a task for us. From now on, you'll fish for people, which is Matthew 28. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, catching them with fish hooks and... No, 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 teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing and teaching. So, so we have here Jesus' great love and Jesus' great commission in these beautiful words on the edge of the shore. Now, straight after this has happened, we bump into somebody else, somebody who has leprosy. Now, we don't meet leprosy very often. It's a, it's a, it's a bacterial disease that gets into the skin and then starts to destroy the body in all sorts of different ways, such that your hands may end up looking like this, sores and ulcers on them, and parts of your limbs start to fall off. And so your, your skin can become faded and discolored. Your nerve endings lose their feelings And so part of the reason that you see lepers with parts of their body missing isn't just that they fall off, but because they get hurt and wounded. Like, if you close your finger in the car door, right? Has anyone done that? It's horrifically painful, and you'll do everything to get it out. What leprosy does is it robs you of the ability for those pain sensors to be sent to you, so you don't know you've injured yourself. Your hand might drop into the fire, and you don't know because your nerves are damaged. And so they become shriveled and it is a horrific disease and there was no hope for those who had it. I want you to see what happens when Jesus meets one of these people in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, guys, I I want you to know the man was begging. Now, where Peter went down on his knees, this man is flat on his face before Jesus. Why is he begging? There is literally no other hope for him in the world. And so he's begging on his face before Jesus. And I want to ask you, do you know this feeling? Have you been flat on your face before God before? It's good, mate. I have. And it's when we come to the end of ourselves and we recognize we don't have the resources we need, that every hope that we have is tied up in Jesus and all you can do is cry out to him. And if you haven't had that experience yet, you will. So what does Jesus do to someone fully on their face in front of him with an uncurable disease? What what does he do? What does he do? Jesus moves towards this leprous man. And he says, I am willing. I am willing. And then he touches the unclean man and says, be clean. Be clean. 
He tells him of his restoration that has happened. And, and these, these words are great. You know, there's a, there's a beautiful part in uh, 2 Peter 3 where it talks about the fact that God will delay the day of judgment so that everyone will be given the chance to repent. I am willing. God is willing. And he wants everyone to be clean. In 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can be clean. We can be clean. But I want you to see what happens. What normally happens in the Jewish world is that if an unclean person was to touch or meet a clean person, the uncleanness would flow to the clean person and now they would be ceremonially unclean. But what happens when the only clean man ever, Jesus, who never sinned, who never let God down, what happens when he meets an unclean leper? What happens? It flows the other way. And so from the clean wholeness of Jesus flows cleansing and wholeness to this man. And guys, you saw that terrible stump of a hand that was in that picture before. Imagine being healed of that. It's a miracle of restoration. It's a miracle of wholeness. It's a miracle of life. And it flowed from Jesus onto the man. And yet the law still said that he had to go and offer sacrifices to be declared to be clean. And so Jesus tells him, you need to go and have a witness to the, to the priests and tell them that you've been cleansed. And um, Leviticus 14 tells us what they need to do. See, you could get a skin disease, and if you had a skin disease and it healed up, then you would go and have yourself declared clean by having the, the, the priest do some sacrifices, right? And Jesus goes to the man, go and do the sacrifices as a witness to the priests. We kind of go, what is that witness to them? Well, what's the man being cleansed from? What, what was wrong with him? He had leprosy. If the priests say you are cleansed officially from leprosy, then it's the first time that's happened in Israel since the time of Elisha 700 plus years ago. The witness to the priests is somebody as powerful as Elisha is now in Israel. It's massive. And it restores the man back to his community. Well, Jesus is in the midst of an amazing time of teaching and healing. Let's see what he does in between times. Have a look with me at verse 15 and following. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Guys, I want you to see, uh, Jesus has a growing reputation. Why wouldn't he? He's healing people all over the place. He's teaching brilliantly. But I want you to see there is still stillness in Jesus' life. Last year, uh, last year, last week, I said to you that Jesus, oh, two weeks ago, I said that Jesus had the custom of being in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. And I said, you should go to church, which is great to all the people who are in church, right? Why should we go to church? Because Jesus went to church. What about having your quiet time? Who, who spends time with God each day? Keep your hands down. Think about it. Who spends time with God each day? You think, well, I'm not really sure I can fit it in. I've got to pack the lunches. I've got to get up. I've got to do my homework. I need to recharge. My, I've got to, whatever it is. I can't fit it in, Jesus, but I will check in with you on Sunday, so you should be thankful for that. I want you to see that the holy Son of God withdrew 
and spent time with his father. He made time to spend time with his father. If it's good enough for Jesus, guess what? Maybe we should engage in spending time in stillness with God. Stillness, still, and then growing scrutiny. We saw that there was a man who was on his knees. Then we saw there was a man who's on his face. And now we see that there are a bunch of men folding their arms again. Have a look with me at verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They'd come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. See, why had they come? They didn't come to fall on their knees. They didn't come to fall on their face. They came to see Jesus fall on his face as a false teacher. And so they came to pick holes in what he was doing. Now, here we have a a first aid kit. And we know that if you've got first aid, you do the the most important things first. Uh, And so you've got, I think I did this a while ago, but danger, response. Can someone tell me what's next? Airways. Breathing, circulation, then defibrillation, I've been told today. But here's the thing. You don't do, you don't do uh, airway last. You don't do airway. You must do the most important thing first. And I want you to see Jesus apply some spiritual first aid here. Have a look with me at this famous story. In verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Now, do we all know what the paralyzed man needs and what his friends want? He wants to be unparalyzed. He wants to walk again. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Extraordinary story, right? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, "'Friend, your sins are forgiven.'" The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Let me just observe some things from this story. Number one, this man had four friends. Four friends. And my question is, do you have four friends who would carry you to Jesus? Do you have four friends who would carry you to Jesus? People who know you, who love the Lord, who if you were struggling would pick you up and take you to the Lord. I think increasingly, and I'll speak to the guys particularly, increasingly as we get older, we we don't do well with friends. This guy had four amazing friends who took him to Jesus. Secondly, I want to say every time I've done this story across the last week, I just want to reflect with you, Oren Park. Everybody has observed that the guy has a hole in his roof. And I say, what's the thing that catches your attention? They go, there's a hole in the roof of the house. I guess the owner of the house would be really annoyed. And can I just say, Oren Park, We are in mortgage madness land. That is not the most extraordinary thing that happens in this story, but everybody is worried about the hole in the guy's... He doesn't get a name. He's not mentioned. Guys, we just need to see the place that property property plays in our hearts, that this is an observable detail. It's not unimportant, but the guy doesn't get a name and nothing else is said about him. He doesn't have a miracle in his roof. And I just want to observe mortgage madness in our hearts. And then I want to get on to the good stuff. I want you to see it's a failed healing, isn't it? Your sins are forgiven. What did I come there for? I want want this taken care of. 
And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. So what's going on? Jesus speaks, and he speaks to the man, and I want you to see the way he does this. He says, friend, and it is such a beautiful personal address. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's personal address. And he declares the new status of the man. He says, this is who you are. I am who you say I am, yeah. Your sins are forgiven. You are now a forgiven one. And in doing so, he makes a claim to be God. You see, in 1 John 3, 1, Jesus says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. He loves us. And then there's this amazing passage I want to read for you. In John 5, 24, it says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. What is that telling us? When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, it's a down payment on the future. You might be here tonight wondering, what will happen when I die? And what Jesus is saying is, I'm giving you the end verdict now. Your sins are forgiven. You need not fear the day of judgment. You're done. Praise God. So what happens next? Well, what happens next is it becomes dangerous for Jesus. It becomes dangerous for Jesus because everyone says, that's blasphemy. You're not allowed to say your sins are forgiven. That's God's business. And what should we do with a blasphemer, everyone? Yep, you should chant that a bit louder, okay? What should we do with a blasphemer? Yeah, okay, good. All of those are good. That's great, yeah. So you've got the energy in the room, right? The energy in the room is this is big trouble for Jesus. And Jesus knows their hearts, and he asks a trick question. And every time I do this with people, we get confused. So let, let me see if I can help clarify this for you. It's, it's a weird question. It's a weird question. It's to do with the mat. Have a look at what Jesus says here. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So here's the question. The question is, is it easier to say, get up and walk, or is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? It's easier, you're right, Owen, and I'm going to show you why. Here's how the question works. Um, Graham, you drove tonight? Excellent. What color is your car? Your car is blue. Thank you, Graham. Uh, does everyone see this TV set here? Is it easier for me to say, TV set, levitate up to here, or I have just turned Graham's car white? What's easier to say? Seriously, I want you to... Sorry? Car is white. Why, Peter? Because nobody can see it, right? If I say TV levitate up to here and it doesn't happen, what do you think about my miraculous powers? Very average. If I say, just now, Graham, your car has been turned white, you don't know about my miraculous powers, right? Maybe it has. It would be nice for Graham, maybe. Uh, so what Jesus says is, I I'm going to do something in front of you. I'm going to do something extraordinary in front of you. This paralyzed man on the mat, it's impossible for him to walk out, right? But it's very visible. And I'm telling you that there's a hard drive in heaven with your sins on it, and I can erase it. I can put it through the shredder. I can destroy the record of your sin, but it's invisible. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to link these two together. I'm going to do the impossible visual thing. 
so that you might know I can do the impossible, invisible thing. Are you with me? And so he says to the man, get up, take your mat and walk. And he gets up, takes his mat and walks out in full view of them all. And what did they do? They all praise God. And they said, we've never seen anything like that. And I want to say to you tonight, every single person there missed the point. Because it wasn't a miracle that was supposed to be about a a, a crippled man walking. It was supposed to be a crippled man walking so that we might know what? That the Son of Man has authority on earth to do what? Forgive sins. And if you'd seen the miracle and you'd heard what Jesus had said, what would you do? You would form an orderly line and you'd put your hand up and you'd say, forgive mine too. Are you with me? And instead, everyone went home going, that's the coolest show we've ever seen. And they missed it. They missed the point that the Son of Man can forgive our sins. Now, I like this car. Um, I'm not really a huge car guy, but nice car. Um, This guy's having a really great day. Clearly, he Instagrammed his car. How wonderful. But while he was doing that, this happened. Now, uh, who here likes parking, uh, parking fine people? Anyone like them? No, we don't like them. Why don't we like them? Because when they hand out their parking fines, we get to pay money to the government that we didn't intend to on that particular day. Has anyone know, got a parking fine recently? Any idea how much they are? 80 bucks? Oh, that, there's actually a thing come out at the moment where they're trying to halve them or something. Is that right? I think something about that. Anyway, forget that brain explosion. But here's the thing. We don't like parking inspectors because they take money from us. They're tax collectors for the government. We don't like them. Now, there was a guy who was a tax collector in this story, and he was much worse than that. He wasn't picking parking fines. He was charging everyone money for the king who was put in place by the Romans. Basically, his job was what I've called personal income tax. What I mean by that is he was making his personal income from tax. Okay, And so what he was done is he, he was given a territory. The king would say, here's your territory. You must collect this much tax from everyone in this territory, and you give it to me. But any money you can take on top of that, you can keep. And so what the tax collectors would do, would they would be charging more than the king had asked of them, of who? Their fellow citizens. And so how popular do you reckon you're going to be if you're taking money from your friends for the Romans? But he receives a personal invitation from Jesus. Everybody hates this man, and yet Jesus speaks to him and says to Levi, who is sitting at his tax collector's booth, follow me. And Levi, verse 28, got up, left everything, and followed him. There was an extraordinary personal commitment. There's no coming back to the job. When you work off the job of the tax collector's booth, no one gives you the job back again later. You lose it. So he walked away and was committed to following Jesus. What was his response after he walked away? Well, we know that he got the message. Verse 29, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So what does he do? Well, the first thing after getting receiving the message of new life. Jesus says, come follow me. He, he just can't help it. He wants to give the message of new life. And he does it, he does it by, by meeting Jesus. And his decision is, I'm going to grab my friends that they might meet Jesus too. 
There's a beautiful quote I came across, and uh, forgive me because it's in uh, um, single-sex language, but it says this, a converted man will not wish to go to heaven alone. Is heaven going to be good? This is a great time to chime in here. Uh, is heaven going to be good? It's going to be all right. If you get it, if you get the forgiveness of sins, if you get the healing of God and you decide, ah, oh, I look forward to enjoying that totally on my own. Something is fundamentally broken. A converted person will not wish to go to heaven alone. And when asked about the company that he kept, Jesus famously and beautifully answered, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call Jesus uses air quotes here. I've not come, you know, there's air quotes in the, in the Bible. Joke, it's a little joke. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There are no righteous people, but Jesus says those who think they're righteous, he can't help. He's come to call the sinners to repentance. So how does God find you today, on this day, on this night? How does God find you? Are you afraid of meeting him? Meet the welcome of Jesus. Are you unclean in your heart? Meet the touch of Jesus. Are you unfixable? Are you unforgivable? Meet the cross of Jesus where all is paid for. Are you unloved? Hear the invitation and the welcome that Jesus offers. If you're here tonight and you're wondering about Jesus, I'd love you to come and join me for Jesus for the Curious. It's a great opportunity to find out more about the man from Nazareth. I would love you to be finding out more about Jesus. But if you're here and you know Jesus, guess what? I want you to come fishing with me. I want you to come fishing. We're going to go fishing for our, our friends, our neighbours, our next door neighbours. I can't find my, my uh, little um, 316441 card. They're on the back table there. And we've got a little card that will help us pray for our friends our family members, our next-door neighbours, and someone we're yet to meet. And I want you to be praying up a storm that the God who loves, heals, and forgives might have mercy on those we care for, that we might not get to glory alone. started by saying, am I good enough for God? And what I want you to know tonight is if your answer is, of course I'm good enough. God would be lucky to have me on his team. You won't get there. But if you're brokenhearted, if you're unclean, if you're feeling unworthy, then Jesus has these beautiful words for us. And he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the beauty in who your son Jesus is, that he reached out and touched, that he invited to follow, that he raised up from the knees, that he restored the flesh, that he forgave the sins, of people just like us. Father, would you send us fishing so that we might see many more found by you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I don't know if there will be any questions. Have we got any questions after, uh, after that tonight? Thanks, Michael. Someone got a question for us to get us started? Generally, once we have one, we get another. Yeah, thanks, Alec. 
um, in verse 20, it says, when Jesus saw the faith of the four guys, then he says to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. So I just wanted to get the relationship through the faith of other people to Jesus forgiving the people that need it. Yeah, there's lots of parts about this that I think are extraordinary. Um, The first thing is a note, a pastoral note, about how we pray for our friends. Uh, in In our worst situations, if we pray for someone to be healed and they're not, the terrible situation that has often happened in Christian communities is that we blame the faith of the individual who's unwell. And that's an absolute travesty from this passage. Here, Jesus looks at the faith of his friends, sees their faith for healing, and offers the man his forgiveness and his healing. And so I think there's actually great responsibility on those of us around those who are unwell to have faith and to pray for them. So that would be my first observation. The second one, what to do with the order of the fact that it's their faith, and yet the first thing he does is pronounce forgiveness, uh, is extraordinary. And without uh, another analogue in scripture that I can find. There might be. But in short, it's very unusual to have other people's faith on behalf of someone else and to have forgiveness thrown in there. I suspect what's happened, though, is that the man is looking at Jesus and his friends are looking at Jesus, but the remarkable thing was that the friends looked in faith and so we're told about their faith. I I can only assume that Jesus forgives this man as he trusts in him as well, but it's not mentioned And it's a great question. And so I observe it back to you and say, hmm. Is that all right? Great. Satisfactory answer, I'm sure. Uh, Is there another question? Who fixed the hole in the man's roof? Yes, I know, Oren Park, you're asking, aren't you? So that's, uh, that's great. I don't know. Is there another question? 